Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. I want to begin today's message by asking you a question. Um, How many of you have had a friend or a family member who at one time was a Christian, but has since deconstructed their faith, and now they are no longer a follower of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's a lot of us. It sort of feels like a modern phenomenon, uh, people deconstructing their faith, but it's not. Um, If we go all the way back to the New Testament, there's Demas, who at one time was one of Paul's co-workers, and yet in 2 Timothy 4, it says he loved the things of this life, and then he left Paul, and he left the faith. There are plenty of modern examples as well. Uh, Josh Harris was a famous pastor and author who was known for helping shape the purity culture among millennials. Uh, In 2018, he left his wife, and then he left the Christian faith. Paul Maxwell, who was a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he also wrote content for John Piper's website, Desiring God, um, he left the faith. Marty Sampson, who was a Hillsong uh, singer and songwriter, in 2019 he posted on Instagram that he was leaving the faith. Then there's Bart Ehrman, uh, who was a New Testament scholar. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, went to Wheaton for his bachelor's. He went to Princeton for his MDiv and his PhD. He studied biblical textual criticism, right? He knew a lot about the Bible. He is now an atheist. Crazy, huh? Now, whether you think they lost their salvation, or as the old timers call it, backsliding, or you think that they were never saved in the first place, right? That would be the Reformed position, the Calvinist position, and I won't get into all that. Regardless, the fact is the person is no longer following Jesus. Um, They have deconstructed their faith. So one thing I want to say about such people is this. Uh, It is important that we don't look down on them. It is important that we don't judge them, that we don't villainize them. Uh, From what I've seen, it actually can be a very painful experience when people stop believing what they once believed. Um, And they're left trying to figure out what they believe. D.A. Carson is one of my favorite New Testament scholars. He's an emeritus pastor at Trinity in Chicago. Um, He also co-founded the Gospel Coalition along with Tim Keller. Um, He said that we need to exercise caution when we're tempted to judge those people who are falling away from the faith. Here's what he said. So it might be that they need listening to and praying over, praying with and so on. They might come back. I could tell you some remarkable stories of people who wandered away in what we would call backsliding 
who nevertheless returned to the Lord a couple decades later. So you want to allow that as a possibility and not in any case be supercilious or condescending. The proper response to deconversion stories is humility and prayer. At the end of the day, apart from the grace of God, we're all dead. So what we're talking about is not just a crisis of faith, uh, it is an identity crisis. It's not just losing our faith in Jesus, it's losing our sense of who we are. And our scripture today, which is the first half of Colossians chapter 3, Um, really speaks about how we can go about maintaining our faith and our identity in Christ. Like, what are the things we can do by God's grace and empowered by his spirit that will help us maintain our faith and our identity in Christ? I want to go back a little bit in Colossians. Colossians 1.23 says this. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. And then Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 say, Just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. And now this week, in the first half of Colossians 3, Paul gives a series of instructions that will help us do just that. Today's scripture is something like a field manual for continuing and growing in the faith in Christ. Let's look at the first four verses again of Colossians 3. Says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So the first thing we see here is how important it is to keep our focus on Jesus. That's where it all starts. Paul says that since you've been raised with Christ, set your sights or keep your focus on him, on him and the things of heaven. So that phrase, set your sights, it's also translated, set your mind. Um, And it's the Greek word phroneo, phroneo. It means means to seek or to strive for, uh, to intensively set your whole mind upon something. Um, So Paul wants us to be so intensely focused on Christ that knowing him is what we crave most, right? And becoming like him is our greatest desire. Paul wants our attention to be fixed on the person of Jesus. Now, I think we all know that uh, what we give our attention to, good or bad, uh, ultimately ends up shaping us, right, forming us. 
influencing how we think, influencing our behavior. But the thing I want to talk about here is this. How do we stay focused on Jesus when we live in a world with so many distractions, right? So many things throughout our day that are just competing for our attention. I mean, even if, even if we're disciplined enough to have a daily quiet time with the Lord, it's so easy for everything that we have to do throughout the day to, to take over our mind and for us to just forget about Jesus. How do we stay focused on Jesus in the midst of all the busyness and all the distractions? So here's a personal illustration along these lines. Most of you know that I spent many years studying classical singing. Um, they'll be showing some photos of me from my opera days as I tell my story. So I started taking voice lessons when I was uh, 17 and stopped taking lessons when I was 29. So 12 years of lessons, usually weekly, sometimes twice a week. I remember early on, my voice teacher gave me a book to read uh, that seemed to have nothing at all to do with books, I mean, with music or with singing. Uh, it was called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. It was all about maintaining focus and finding a state of, like, relaxed concentration when your mind is, like, trying to process a hundred different things. And uh, at first I was like, uh, why are you having me read a book on tennis? But then I figured it out after I read it. Anyone who's been a performer, anyone who's been an athlete, um, knows that there are so many things you have to think about simultaneously, right? Uh, when, it's, when it's opera, it kind of goes like this. So they tell you to... Focus on your posture, right? Stand correctly. Then they tell you to focus on your breathing, right? Not this shallow kind of breathing, but abdominal breathing, right? Then they tell you to focus on your diction, okay? How you pronounce the words. That, that needs to be correct, right? And usually you're singing in a foreign language, right? Usually Italian, French, or German. Then there's the high notes, okay? They're inevitable, Right? You got to think about those. You got to stay relaxed. You got to stay open. Then you end up on stage, okay, with an orchestra and a conductor. Better watch the conductor, right? But only don't stare at him directly, okay? You can only look at him out of the corner of your eye, out of your peripheral vision, okay? Then there's a stage director, okay? He's telling you where to go, he's telling you what to do, he's telling you how to do it. Then there's a stage manager who's giving you directions as well. There's a costume director. There's a person who's doing your makeup. Um, I even had a wig maker one time. Uh, she made me a wig out of human hair. Kind of sounds gross, but that's a high-end wig if it's actually made out of human hair. And she said this to me. She said, you better be careful with this. This is worth thousands of dollars. So do you think when I was on stage, I was thinking about this wig that was on my head? Absolutely, right? And on stage, okay, on stage, the lights many times are so bright that you're essentially blind, OK? 
Okay, you can't see one person in the audience. So you better be careful that you don't fall into the orchestra pit. Okay, I've seen that happen before. It's not pretty. Okay, and in spite of the hundred things that you have to think about, okay, you have to stay focused, you have to remain in character, and you have to put on a good performance. If you play sports, I'll go down this road. If you play sports, you know it is the same, okay? I can't imagine what it takes for someone like Patrick Mahomes to be in the Super Bowl on national TV, right? Remembering all the different plays, maybe adapting, calling an audible, right? Running to avoid the huge linebackers that are all coming for him. I looked it up. Linebackers usually weigh somewhere between 240 and 280 pounds, right? That is scary, okay? In the midst of all of that, he has to keep his eye on the goal and perfectly pass the ball to Travis Kelsey for a touchdown, right? So whether it's sports, whether it's music or whatever, being able to focus on what is important without being distracted is a critical skill. Sometimes uh, success, ultimately, it, it comes down to focus, focus. Running is another good example. It's a biblical example, okay? I try to run three times a week. Uh, in the winter, I run 3.2 miles on the treadmill uh, at the gym. When it's warmer, I run somewhere between four and six miles outside. So when you're running, what do you think you should be looking at? Okay. Well, I can tell you that if you look at your feet, you're going to fall flat on your face. If you look at the cars driving by, or if you look at the people walking by, if you stare at them too long, you will fall on your face. Okay. Now, you keep your eyes focused forward. And you don't look at where you are, you look at where you're headed. Okay? And if it's a race, you definitely want to keep your eye out for the finish line. Okay, the writer to the Hebrews uses this very same imagery in Hebrews chapter 12 when he's describing the Christian life. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So that's our focus. That's who we keep our eyes on, Jesus. Okay? Even in the midst of 100 distractions, we calmly keep our eyes, we keep our focus on Jesus. That's what Paul's saying in our scripture today. That's how we live the Christian life. That is how we run and that is how we win the race. Not focusing primarily on ourselves, not focusing on our performance or our work or even our family or even our fears or all our problems or all the problems of the world, but we focus on Jesus. In the midst of 100 distractions, we need to calmly keep our focus and our attention on Jesus. 
The 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said this, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That's an important key to living the Christian life. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Let's look at verses 5 through 11, the next, next few verses. It says this. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. So what we see in these verses uh, is primarily, at least at the beginning there, a list of vices, sins that we're to put to death. Then Paul tells us to put on our new nature, or in other translations, it says our new self. Paul's showing us a few things here. First, that the gospel changes us. If we truly come to faith in Christ, if we let Jesus be the Lord of our whole life, right? he will begin to change us from the inside out. There will eventually become a contrast between the old and the new, right? between the old self and the new self. So here's an analogy I've used in the past. Uh, usually when I'm discipling guys who are struggling with their old nature. Um, I tell them this. So as Christ followers, we have an old self and we have a new self. Right? There are always, at least this side of heaven, they're always both present. Okay? Now whichever one we choose to feed uh, grows stronger. And the one we choose to starve grows weaker. Now, my old self has not completely died. Uh, but I have locked him in the basement, and I don't feed him. Okay? I hear him there, hear him rumbling around. Um, and if I wanted to, I could just let him out, start feeding him again. Like today, I could do that. But as a daily choice to keep my eyes on Jesus... Right? And listen to who he says I am, right? a new creation, his beloved, a saint who sometimes still sins. But I know that I am his and he is mine. That is who I am, not the creature that I used to be. In the NIV translation, Paul says this in verse 9. 
He says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You could also think of this as putting off the old humanity and putting on the new humanity. Because the word Paul uses here for self is the Greek word anthropos, which means human being, which theologically points to the fact that there were two men in history um, who profoundly influenced the entire human race. That includes you and I. The first was Adam, Right? He represents the old, fallen, sinful humanity. Uh, but the new man, the second Adam, is the person of Jesus Christ. Right? If we are in Christ, we are putting off the old humanity right, from Adam, and we are to put on the new humanity that comes from Christ. And it doesn't mean that we become a Christian by living in certain ways, right? That's, that's backwards, right? It means that we, we've, if we've become a Christian, we'll start living in a new way. Because the Holy Spirit, is, he's in us, he's changing us, he is transforming us from the inside out. That's the key. He's doing it from within, right? We transform... Uh, Not by trying harder to live better, right? I got to get better. I got to do this better. We transform by being in the Lord's presence, right? Through worship, through prayer, through the word, through being with his people. And we allow the indwelling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to begin to influence us to guide us, to direct us, and to ultimately transform us. One aspect of this new humanity that I'm talking about um, that we sometimes forget is that there are no social, racial, religious, or socioeconomic distinctions. Right? It says it in verse 11. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. It means that now that we are in Christ, we aren't just part of a new humanity, we're part of a new family, right? And all all those former distinctions that used to be, uh, they used to like determine who's better than who, right? Who's higher up on the ladder than who? All of those are gone. What this means is that because we're part of this new family, the church becomes a picture of this future reality of the kingdom of God, right? The future reality of the kingdom of God where a CEO can love and be friends with a homeless person. Where an upstanding, law-abiding citizen, a pillar of the community, can embrace and love and be friends with an ex-con, right? 
or someone who's come out of a drug addiction or alcoholism or someone who's still struggling with these very things. Because we are part of this new family of Christ followers, even conservatives can love and be friends with liberals and vice versa. Clicks, you know what click is? Clicks should disappear. They should be gone, right? As we warmly welcome, as we show hospitality to the outsider, to the stranger, to the alien. I especially like these words in verse 11, barbaric and uncivilized. It means we could see, uh, for instance, someone who's come from a really rough background. I'm just giving you some examples. Maybe they were a, a gang member or a drug dealer or a pimp, right? And now they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And they are loving and being friends with people who are completely unfamiliar with that lifestyle and vice versa. I like that phrase too, uh, slave or free, slave or free. Who are some of the slaves in this world right now? Those who are victims of sex trafficking, for sure. That would include people who've been abducted for such purposes. That would include uh, escorts, dancers, people who make adult movies people who watch such movies, right? All slaves. There's the drug industry, right? Even more slaves. Uh, From manufacturers of illegal drugs to dealers to addicts, whether you're addicted to meth or prescription pain meds, right? Slaves, all of them all enslaved to a demonic system that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. What would it look like for these people to experience the transforming power of Jesus Christ and be set free? Again, verse 11 says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Let's look at the next verses, 12 through 15. It says this, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Now, Paul gives several instructions here. Uh, There's several of these one another uh, in this scripture that we're maybe familiar with. Uh, These are all markers of our identity as the people of God, 
meaning the church. So these behaviors are what determine our identity as followers of Jesus Christ to the world around us. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh pastor who lived from 1899 to 1981. Um, For almost 30 years, he was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. When he was a young man, uh, before he became a pastor, he was actually a medical doctor. He got his MD from the University of London and he became a member of the Royal College of Physicians. He He was just 26 at this time, just starting out in his career. He was doing very well, um, but also he was a Christ follower. And he was beginning to wrestle with God's calling on his life. So one of the turning points of his life at that time was this. So one night his wife, and he and his wife went to a play uh, at a theater in London. And when they were leaving the play, Martin noticed that there was a group of people uh, standing on the street corner from the Salvation Army, and they were singing hymns, and they were sharing the gospel with people. And it was in that moment that it hit him. He thought, those are my people. Those are my people. He saw a huge contrast between the people at the play that he just attended and the people who were filled, overflowing with joy and were singing hymns and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can definitely relate to this story. Um, I had a similar experience when I was sensing God's call to switch from performing to ministry. The thing I found so attractive about the church that I was a part of at the time uh, was that they were so real, like authentic, transparent. Uh, I kept meeting people who were just honest about their failings and their brokenness, but they were passionately pursuing Jesus, right? It was a stark contrast to the world that I was in at the time. Uh, the opera world, where so much of the focus is on yourself. It's on your accomplishments. Um, One difference I noticed was this. Among my singer friends, often when when someone would leave the room, uh, the others would immediately start talking about them behind their back. They'd flatter you to your face, and then they would tear you down behind your back. It was almost like demonic. Now, there were exceptions to this, uh, but what I'm describing was pervasive. And over time, if I'm honest, I found myself doing the same thing. So among my Christian friends at this, at this new church that we were going to, um, they did the opposite. Like they built each other up, they... We're encouraging one another. Uh, In the former environment, everyone hid their flaws and they accentuated their strengths. In the latter, almost all the people I met were very transparent about their past mistakes, 
their brokenness, their current struggles. And yet you could tell that they loved Jesus, like they had a burning passion for Jesus and they were passionately pursuing him. It was refreshing. It was beautiful. And I thought to myself, these are my people. Now, I don't want you to think that like every opera singer is self-centered and backbiting. And I don't want you to think that every Christian is humble and self-effacing, emotionally healthy enough to, in Paul's words, to make allowance for other people's faults, to clothe themselves with humility and gentleness and patience. Unfortunately, I think it's, it's actually rare to see that kind of behavior in churches. I know I hadn't seen a church like that before, a community of grace. And that church was absolutely formative in my life as a Christ follower. I was discipled, mostly in the context of small groups. Uh, My small group leader helped me identify my pastoral calling. Later I went on to school, eventually left to go on staff at another church. And now, 22 years later, I'm standing here telling you about the importance the local church has in the life of a Christian especially when that church operates as a community of grace. When people deconstruct their faith, right, and they begin this journey away from Jesus, like one of the very first steps that they take is to pull away from the church. That's why Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Ask yourself, who are my people? Who do I belong to? If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to the people of Jesus, right? Which means that you should belong to a Christ-centered, gospel-preaching church, right? If you're checking out different churches, that's okay. But at some point, you should actually commit yourself long-term to a local church, right? Doesn't have to be this one, Um, but you should eventually find a church family to join and to commit yourself to. And it's important, it's really important, to go deeper than just attending on Sunday morning. Right? You will never grow, you will never become all God has created you to be by just attending church once a week. That church I'm talking about that had such an impact on me. The first year we were there, I gave my life to Christ. I was baptized. I started taking like as many classes as I could. Uh, I was in two different small groups at the same time. The first year I was there, 
I read more of the Bible in that year than I'd read in my entire life up to that point. Eventually, they started asking me to lead things. And then it just took off from there. Now, I want to point out something. Churches are like families. And just as no family is perfect, no church is perfect. Right? Even that church I was describing wasn't perfect. It was healthier than a lot of churches I've seen uh, in that people were more self-aware right, of their past issues, their current issues. Overall, they were very non-religious, not judgmental. They weren't pretentious. Uh, they didn't pretend like they were better than they were. I think it helped that they had several like inner healing ministries, support ministries, recovery ministries. But even with all that, it wasn't perfect because no church is perfect, right? Eventually, people will disappoint you. Eventually, you will get hurt. I'm sure at some point, I'm going to disappoint you if I haven't already. I may even hurt you. I mean, that's not my intention, but we are all imperfect, flawed beings. But we're family, so we work through things. Right? And if we discover that we have issues ourselves, personally, right, we work on them. We get help. When it comes to these instructions from Paul, like showing kindness and mercy and gentleness and patience and being forgiving and loving... Right? A lot of pastors preach on this basically just telling their congregation to go do these things. Like, go, go do these things. Go be kind-hearted and loving. And go forgive people. Right? Sometimes people discover they are actually unable to do these things because they're stuck. They may be stuck because of a trauma or a wound that happened early in life that prevents them from trusting, from loving, from forgiving. They may have been physically abused. They may have been emotionally abused, spiritually abused. They may be stuck because they grew up in a dysfunctional home where healthy relationships weren't modeled. They learned unhealthy behavior from their parents. All of these things can prevent us from doing the things Paul says we should do, even if we want to. Maybe there's codependency there, anxiety, depression. Maybe it's a father abandonment issue. How can you love and trust your father in heaven when all you know is an absent father? Or maybe your father was physically there but he was emotionally absent, right, or abusive. How can you love and trust others when you have been wounded deeply by people? Or maybe addiction runs in your family. Or maybe you developed an addiction as a coping mechanism for the trauma that you went through. And then there's just generally, like, how emotionally healthy are we? Emotionally mature, right? Are we able to be confronted with something difficult without deflecting, without getting defensive? 
Are we able to be vulnerable and own our own mistakes, right? Our weaknesses, be honest about our weaknesses, our failures. These are all signs of emotional health, emotional maturity. All of this is why the hospital aspect of the church is so important. Right? Because barring a miracle, uh, none of this is going to be fixed or healed in a sermon or in a Bible study. Right? That's why we need inner healing ministries. We need support ministries. We need recovery ministries. We need to learn about emotional health. And sometimes we need counseling. So we have Stephen Ministry now. It's a team of people who are trained to help people walk through difficult situations in their life. We have a team of people who are working to develop an inner healing ministry called Oaks of Righteousness. Those who struggle with these kinds of things I'm talking about, wounds or sins of the past, right? Those who've survived abuse, they're dealing with bondages, they might be dealing with addictions. These healing ministries are important because we cannot be free to love, we cannot be free to trust, we cannot be free to forgive and be all God wants us to be if we are not healthy. Over the years, I've seen so many people who were stuck eventually get healed, eventually they get freedom to be all God has called them to be. And this would include myself. Right? I would not be here as your senior pastor without the help of a community of grace. Right? A community of grace who accepted me right where I was at, warts and all, all my brokenness, all my mess. And I, believe me, I was a mess. Right? When you grow up in a dysfunctional, alcoholic, broken home, you don't even know what normal is. So many times, like I would say something that was out of line or I'd behave in a way that's out of line, right? Most, if it wasn't a community of grace, they would just shun me. They would just walk away from me. But people helped me. They helped, they lovingly came alongside me and helped me find my way, helped me find my healing, helped me find freedom. But I think the key to not falling away from the faith is keeping our eyes on Jesus, right, and allowing him into every part of our lives, every part of our hearts, not just the present, not just the future, also the past, no matter how painful, no matter how traumatic, no matter how dark that was. It is allowing Jesus into every aspect of who we are. Because if we let him in there, and I'm not just saying like, like Lord, do, go do your thing, and then I go live my life. I mean like letting his people in there because this is the body of Christ, right? It means God is going to use people to touch parts of my life, my heart, my history that is gonna bring healing, restoration, redemption, 
and freedom and allow me to become all God has created me to be. Then, then, all those things in that list that Paul instructs us to do, they come from the inside out through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are not stuck anymore. We can show love, we can show grace, we can offer forgiveness, right? And then we can become, right, the community of grace that I'm talking about, where more and more people can experience that transforming power as well. I would not be here had that community of grace not loved me right where I was at and helped me find healing, freedom. Because we're part of a new family, that's what you do, right? Maybe you adopted children, right? You don't judge them because they're acting in the ways that they used to act because of the family they came from. No, you lovingly help them learn the new way of the new family, healthy ways, right? This is what we are called to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And even though none of us deserved it, God, you, you died for us. You brought us into your forever family. Lord, we invite you into every aspect of our lives, every aspect of ourselves, even our past pains, our disappointments, our failures, our deepest wounds, and all the ways that that might continue to affect us now. I pray, Jesus, for health, Pray for freedom. Pray that you would enable us to truly become a community of grace where we can experience your grace and extend that grace to others. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.